Welcome to Pardon the Confusion. This is your host, Paul Arnold. I'm here with Ernest Watts, and we're going to bring you another Masterclass podcast because there's no sports on except for repeats, repeats, repeats. Today, Ernest, we had our choice of uh, NBA championship game, Heat uh, against San Antonio. We had choice of a hockey game with Red Wings against Penguins. We had the repeat of the Masters. What am I missing here? What else repeat did I miss? I watched the Red Zone. They did game week five. Every day, NFL Channel's Red Zone is showing one week's worth of Red Zone. So you've got eight hours of, of highlights. In high, yeah, but no commercials. It just goes. Now, was that the, the NHL finals between the Penguins and, the Red, and the Red Wings? It went seven games and it came down. Was that the last hurrah for the Red yes, Wings? Yes, it was. was it? Yeah. I didn't watch for long. <laughs> so we're Lind- gonna- Lindstrom was there, right? Lindstrom, he was. was. There was a lot of good players still on that team, but uh, it was time for Penguins to to take care of the Red Wings. And we're going to look back today at some of the greatest players in Major League Baseball, and we're going to focus on one position, and that's outfield. And really, that's three positions or more when you think about all the different people who played outfield. So we're going to first talk about our top three outfielders ever that's a pretty big question then we're going to talk about our favorite three outfielders which could be the same or something different and then if we have time Ernest this is saying a big if we might talk about our favorite all-time outfielders for our home teams our home favorite baseball teams which for me is Detroit Tigers for you it's the Orioles. Baltimore Thanks Orioles. Thanks to the Braves, too. And the Orioles and Braves. I'm, I'm flexible now. Oh, well, if we have time. If we, if we have time. If people know by this podcast sometimes we like to chase a few rabbits, and that's what makes it fun. So I like talking baseball this time of year. Baseball represents just taking your time, being in the summer, uh, breathing fresh air, um, eating food. And so – Ernest, I'm going to give you just the layup. Who is your top outfielder of all time? Well, that I've seen play. No, no. It can be any player. Any. Oh, it's, it's got to be. I mean, you got to go Willie Mays. I got to go with Willie Mays. Say hey, Willie Mays. Yeah. I mean, he was able to. Wow. I mean, this is hard. I would be Mays, but a close second would be Ted Williams, Teddy Ball Game. So you're going Willie Mays, Ted Williams, and who's your third? Wow. Uh, I got to go with Hank Aaron. Okay, Hank Aaron. I mean, I mean, you know, you talk uh, Ty Cobb and, and George Sisler and, 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 you know, Babe Ruth. I mean, there's a lot of guys you can talk about. But these are guys influenced by who I got to see play. So I will go with those three. Yeah. All right. So I'll go with, I agree, you got to have Willie Mays in there. But my number one outfielder of all time is Babe Ruth. Of course, I didn't see him. He died when he was only 53 years old. But I remember when I was a little kid, I got a scholastic book that told me the story of Babe Ruth. And part of it was actually wrong. Legend had it that he grew up in an orphanage, and it really wasn't a reform school. By age seven, he was growing up in the poorer parts of Baltimore, drinking alcohol, chewing tobacco, and his parents didn't know how to deal with him. In fact, his dad died in a fight with his brother-in-law. Anyway, so Babe Ruth went to a reform school, and while he was there, 
he played a lot of baseball, and the um, priest really helped him understand the game. And when he came out, I think he made up for lost time. He was awesome on the field, and he tried to be awesome off the field. Uh, if you ever watch the movie The Natural, you can see they sort of tip their hat to Babe Ruth and his beyond legendary performance on or off Joe the field. Don, Joe Don Baker plays what they call the bopper. The bopper. But it was definitely the, the, supposed to be Babe oh, Ruth. Oh, yeah, Babe Ruth, yeah, because he batted left-handed. And Joe Don Baker, uh, who would later star in James Bond movies and and uh, would be walking the original Walking Tall, they're on a train, and they get off, and, and uh, Robert Redford's character throws to him, and he bats left-handed. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry. Well, Babe Ruth, according to Gene Gums, who's on our Boys of Summer Baseball podcast, said that Babe Ruth had the heaviest bat, and yet he still got around on the fastballs that were thrown to him. His career stats were he hit 342. That was his career average. Hit 714 home runs, which is the famous number, 2,214 RBIs. And if you believe in this war uh, statistic these days, which is trying to compare that player against his contemporaries, Babe Ruth had the all-time high 162 war that in his day, he was far beyond anybody else. So often we see this image of Babe Ruth as this heavy, fat guy that could hit a baseball, but he started out as a pitcher, then he played outfield, and when he was playing outfield one game in 1924, he ran to catch a ball and ran right into a concrete wall, so much for padded walls back then, knocked himself out, he was on the ground for five minutes. They didn't cart him away. He woke up and he stayed in the game. So he's stuff of legend, and so it's sort of hard to put it in perspective. But to me, he's got to be number one. And then I had Willie Mays number two. Well, well, well can we debate Babe Ruth before we go? Babe yeah, Ruth? yeah. Let's debate him a little bit. First of all, what was the last team he played for? Yankees. The Braves. Oh, he started off with Boston. And then he right. went to the Where he Yankees. won 20 games. He was, and the first year he led the league in home runs, he led it with 14. That's how much he changed the sport. It'd be like uh, someone going from a, it'd be like a pitcher winning 60 games. He tripled the average league leader in that respect. Uh, he, again, he was as droid a pitcher as he was an outfielder. Uh, he later tried to manage that didn't work out no. too well, but the reason why I don't have him in my top three, yes. my rationale, and my reason is he only played against white guys. It was a segregated league. And yeah. so that means that so much of the talent he, he faced a watered down league at that time. And that's, that's my only debate. Uh, a lot of people have the pejorative image of the big fat guy and he really wasn't in his early years. He was built like a linebacker. He gained weight at the end. And again, he was the first sports celebrity that, you know, the LeBron that we see today and the other guys that became a a business entity. He was the first in that respect. And no, the candy bar was not named (laughs) after him. It was named after... I believe William Howard Taft. But a lot of people listening don't even know what Baby Ruth candy bar is. I haven't seen one oh, of those in years. Have you seen true. one? No, no, I haven't seen one. It's when like we were growing bars. up, Baby Ruth candy bars were like Snickers. They were really good because they had caramel and peanuts and things like that in there. Um, but I get it that a lot of people haven't seen Babe Ruth. 
And I didn't get to see Willie Mays myself, but all the stories about Willie Mays and the highlight of the great catch he made. Let me give the statistics for Willie Mays, and you can fill in some stories here. Uh, Willie Mays had 660 home runs. He It was averaged 302 over his uh, career. He had 12 consecutive gold gloves. Um, he had eight consecutive 100 RBI seasons. Uh, his war was 156, and Babe Ruth was 162. Uh, say Hey Willie Mays played in one of the most difficult fields, Ebbets Field, um, anybody could play in, and yet he still played great. He hung on probably a little too long at the end. I think that's why his average went down. Uh, why do you think Willie Mays is so great, Ernest? Okay, this is where we're going to get in trouble here. So he actually played in the Polo Grounds. Oh, Ebbets not Ebbets Field. Field. The Dodgers, yeah. And the Polo Grounds was built for a football stadium. So center field was 460 yards, 460 feet, excuse me. <laughs> okay, uh, right one mistake each field. so far. We're right, okay. Yeah, one mistake, okay. So it was a very deep outfield. And, you know, that led to one of the greatest plays of all time when he caught was back to the outfield mm-hmm. in the, the World Series. Um, when he first came up, he was brought up by for the Minneapolis Millers was a minor league team. He went one for 24. And he was upset, and he wanted to go home. He was signed from the Birmingham Giants, was a Negro League team, and he wanted to go back. He wanted to give up. And Leo DeRocher, who was his manager, said, listen, kid, you're my center fielder for the next 20 years. And then he just took off. And again, his range in the outfield. His nickname was? Say Hey Kid. You know why that came from? Because it's a song. There's a song. No, no. uh, It was horrible names. So when he was calling off guys in the outfield, he couldn't remember his own teammates' name. <laughs> so he said, say, hey, hey, I got it. Say, hey. So that's why he was the say, hey, kid. Oh, now, what nice. team did he finish his career with? Giants. The Mets. His last play was the 1973 World Series against the A's, and his arm was so shot that he had to throw from the outfield underhanded. Wow. The last game he played was game three, and the pain in his shoulder was so bad that but again, I watched him play, and it's the old joke is the world is covered by water, four-fifths of the world. The other fifth is covered by Willie Mays. <laughs> I mean, he just had amazing range, and he could do it all. And at a time in the 50s when the Giants were in New York, you had this debate on who had the best center fielder. Was it Duke Snyder with the Dodgers, or was it Mickey Mantle? with the uh, Yankees at the time. Now, Mantle had a knee injury that was because of Joe DiMaggio. DiMaggio was so jealous of Mantle. There was a drainage area in in the outfield. And DiMaggio was bad for telling Mantle when a ball was coming in. He called the last minute. He said, I ain't got it. You take it. And Mantle stepped into this drainage hole and tore up his knee. And, of course, we didn't have the surgery we had today. Right. So Mantle suffered from knee injuries from 54. So you're going to blame DiMaggio on that? Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's always been the story. Did Mantle blame DiMaggio for that? Oh, no, no. Mantle wouldn't do that. Mantle revered DiMaggio. I mean, he was part of... We're talking Joe DiMaggio, if you didn't know. And if you don't know, shame on you. We're not talking about Dom DiMaggio or (laughs) the other brothers or... Or John DiMaggio, who does the voices for Futurama. No, we're talking Dom DiMaggio. DiMaggio was so, personality-wise, he was he had some problems. Of course, now, a lot of that's the family he was raised in. His dad was very, very strict. 
but and DiMaggio was so jealous of Ted Williams. And he it was kind of like a a Stars Born kind of situation. He saw this new Anjoui coming in, Mantle coming in, and 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 Stangle loved Mantle more than DiMaggio, because DiMaggio was there before Casey Stangle came to manage yeah, the team. Yeah. So that rivalry kind of left it to it. And yeah, I, I blame DiMaggio for Mantle's wow, knee. That's now, pretty cold, man. Now, now Mantle, of course, liked the the women and wine and he loved to he didn't exactly take care of himself. No, afterwards. he did not. And it he, was a he indulged, boy from the know. farm made up for it in the city. I'll say that. But he was he was haunted. The fact Mantle was because his dad had died and before he was 30. And that's something that haunted him his entire life. Mm. That he, he would tell people, I know I'm going to die young in that respect. But his dad was uh, a farmer in Oklahoma, methane gas. Mm. I mean, it was just dangerous work. But... Yeah. Back to your third choice. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So we got Babe Ruth, Willie Mays, but that's a great story about DiMaggio and Mantle. So this third choice was really hard for me because I thought about Mickey Mantle because consider if these players had the medical uh, talent that we have now to restore people and to give them a second chance. Mickey Mantle may have been the greatest outfielder ever. I think Mike Trout is the closest comparison we have nowadays but Mickey Mantle was amazing. And then I thought about Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron hit 305 over his career, 755 home runs, 2,300 RBIs, all-star 21 years in a row. He had a war of 143. But my third pick is not either one of those two. It's the splinter. It's Ted Williams because of this fact. Ted Williams hit 344 average, 521 home runs, 1,800 RBIs, and he played... He didn't get to play during the war. There was his best war. prime wars, two wars. I know he he was in World War II and the Korean War. He left the team and came back. If you gave him two more years or three more years, where would his home runs be? Where would his RBIs be? Plus, he had the shift on him all the time, and he had to put it in places, hit it in places that nobody else could. He wasn't the most likable guy. But I would say, in my book, he's number three. I, I, you know, a lot of the gruff, I mean, he was about as right-wing as you could get. I mean, to the extent that, and a lot of people say, well, and, and realize that he was an ace. He had his 20 kills as a pilot. And he went to, in World War II, he attended the, uh, the Navy uh training area here in Chapel Hill and they played as a group called the, Glo the Cloudbuster Nine that would raise money between times when he would go overseas to shoot. You know who his wingman was in Korean War? I have no idea. John Glenn. John Glenn? Really? Was his yeah, was his wingman. The famous was. astronaut folks and senator yes, really and out senator, of it. Senator, yeah, yeah. First man, first American to orbit the earth. Uh, he just, and again now people talk about the, the, the uh, again, the last man to hit 400. Uh, 403 had a chance to sit out the doubleheader in 1941. This was before the war. Uh, he could have sat out doubleheader, and his average was 399998. It would have been rounded up. And he said no. He went four for six, wound up with a 403. Last man to hit 400. That's the same year, 1941, that DiMaggio had the 56 game hitting streak. Well, the one knock against baseball. Ted Williams is he didn't play much in the playoffs of the World Series, but th that's not his fault because the Yankees 
were totally on a roll. Plus, Yankees had such a great lineup, they protected each other in the lineup. Ted Williams didn't have that same protection. He still hit that high. Well, there was only one World Series appearance. It was 1947, and it was against the Cardinals, and he batted under 200. So that's a, that's a, that's a slow survey of what he could do. He never got back to the World Series again. Now, remember, you only had two leagues and no playoffs, so his playoff experience was – and he didn't have the surrounding cast that, that right, exactly. uh, DiMaggio had in that respect. So it's kind of hard to compare that in that respect. His average in all-star games were pretty high in that respect. Uh, he wasn't the best outfielder in the world, but hitter probably the best. That was all he ever asked for. People asked him you know, when he was a young man. What do you want to be? I said, I want to walk down the street. People point to me and say, there goes the greatest hitter that ever lived. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to be the greatest ball player. For a long time when DiMaggio was alive, he had this title of the greatest living baseball player. Now, that, that flips it over. Who now is the greatest living baseball player? Well, before we get to that, part of my okay. research was to look on the internet, of course, and Bleacher Report, a guy named Kelly Miller wrote an article, the top 10 outfielders in history and i'm going to give you the uh, we've already talked about six of them i'm going to give you the other four and you, th this is probably going to touch on some that you thought about putting in the top three as well he put barry bonds number two and we can talk about that later joe dimaggio of course ty cobb frank robinson and stan musual so out of those players if you had to pick another like was right behind your top three which one of those players would you pick next you know, I love Frank Robinson. And and Cobb suffers from the same problem that I have with Ruth. The fact that he played at a period when a large segment of the population could not play in the major leagues. And you put apart his personality. And again, uh, let's face it, this this is was a horrible, horrible man who may have killed somebody. There's there's always been stories about it. May have killed his own father for that matter. Uh Frank Robinson was just the epitome of leadership on baseball. I mean, he would stand close to the plate. And here's a guy that uh, it was MVP, first one to be MVP in two leagues. Right. And I guess the best Cincinnati summation. Cincinnati and Orioles. And the Orioles. The best summation was when he was traded to the Dodgers in 72. Um, John Stedman, who was a writer for the Baltimore Sun, made the statement he said god forbid when frank robinson left it was like a mother leaving the children behind mm. i mean he had the he had the kangaroo court in the orioles where he put a mop head on and he would do these <laughs> fines right for the little things and you know you know didn't go to second didn't go to third didn't back up the catcher didn't back up the first baseman i'll throw to first and they you know there was the first one to have a kangaroo court and they'd take all the money at the end of the year They'd have a big party and they'd give some to charity in that respect. But he was the epitome of, of a leader in that respect. And he had the power. He he would steal. He was, again, he wasn't that fast, but he just had this audaciousness. And again, when he came over, he I had the triple crown. Right. When he was traded to the Orioles in 66, the Reds thought he was over the hill. He was 27 years old. And they had Veda Pinson. They wanted to play Veda Pinson very much. So they traded him for three players. Uh, Jack Bunker was one. I forget the other two. They were mediocre ball players. 
And he went over and, and he just <laughs> owned the league in that 316, 49 home runs, 122 RBIs in 1966, and that was his triple crown. The thing that Frank Robinson suffers from a little bit is his numbers are not awesome. He's got 294 batting average, 586 home runs, 1,800 RBIs. His war was 107.3. So I think the un- intangibles make him even a better player, I think what you're saying. And you got to put it in context. Remember, when he retired, he was third in home runs. So we've seen the increase in in home runs. And at the time he was, you know, 1966, there were only three other guys that hit over 300. All right, tough question. Roberto Clemente, if he had not died in that plane wreck, would he have been better than Frank Robinson? When he had the home runs, he had the leadership, had the best arm I've ever seen from the outfield. He played for the Pittsburgh uh, Pirates. Pirates. So if you don't remember. Yeah, got his 3,000th hit last game of the regular season against John Matlock of the Mets. And then there was an earthquake in Managua, in Nicaragua. And he got together a human, humanitarian effort to bring in fresh water and food. And the airplane he had coming in uh, on New Year's Eve of that year crashed just off the coast after takeoff. Mm-hmm. And so he passed away. And kind of like Kobe, they kind of waived the five-year period went into the Hall of Fame the next year. Mm-hmm. Similar how Kobe's going in this year and not the, the five-year wait after the career. But, uh, again, the best, he was a Dodger for one year. The Pirates picked him up on the Rule 13, which means if you uh, signed the kid and they played in the major leagues for one year but did not go back to the minors and wasn't on your 40-man roster, mm-hmm. he could be drafted for a fee. And so after one year with the Dodgers, the Pirates picked him up led the Pirates to the 1970 World Series against my – 1971, excuse me, against my Orioles. Seven game, they came back from down three games to one. But, again, one of the best – he didn't have the power numbers. The average might have been higher in that extent. But, again, it was the intangibles. And he was kind of a leader for Hispanic players to the extent that he was the first one that was very vocal. Mm-hmm. Now, the first Hispanic ball players were in the 40s after World War II, but he was the first to talk about the, the language difficulties and how they were treated differently. And because they didn't master the English language, a lot of sports writers considered them to be not as intelligent as, as uh, African-American and white ball players at that time. Mm-hmm. So as, as much as Jackie Robinson was uh, an icon for African-American baseball players, Roberto Clemente was that also. Well, I think we're sort of in the age where we forget that baseball was very regional and you didn't have as much coverage as now. You had big, powerful AM radio stations that would broadcast the games. And Stan Musial played for the Cardinals his whole career. Was one of those guys guys that benefited from playing on a, a team that was the only team for miles and miles in the Midwest. And there are St. Louis Cardinal fans because they could pick up that radio station at night and there was no sports on TV. You could just listen to the radio game and Stan Musial, Stan the Man, hit 331 over his career, 475 home runs. He had 1,900 RBIs. Uh, He missed one year in 1945 for the war. And his statistical war, WR, was 128. So he was a great player... But he was revered. I mean, I've talked to people in Indiana, 
Kentucky, when I've lived in both those states, I've talked to some people in Georgia and even Missouri further out in Texas that talk about Stan the Man as being the best player, their favorite player ever because he was a class act and he was a great player. So can you think of other regional players? Well, let, that... let me tell you the reason why. KMOX is the radio station. And up until about five years ago, they did the Cardinals, one of the Superstation radio stations. You got to remember before 1958, 1957, the Cardinals were the team for the West and the South because the Giants and Dodgers hadn't moved. So baseball was a Northeastern sport. I mean, the, the, at that time, the Cubs, the White Sox, and the Cardinals were the teams that were furthest West. And to the South, St. Louis was the furthest South team. That no was Braves. No Braves. I mean, the Senators were it. Senators were a lousy team. The old quote about the Senators, last in your hearts, last in your dreams, last in the American League. <laughs> but uh, he, again, he was such a nice guy. No one says anything bad about him. Ran a restaurant for many years in St. Louis, did, a, did some color broadcasting on the radio station with Harry Carey for a long time. <laughs> And, and he had this unusual batting stance. It was called peeking around the corner, batted left-handed, but had his, his back facing the pitcher. Right. So he'd uncurl, it was a closed batting stance, from Denora, Pennsylvania. And the only other person to come from Denora, Pennsylvania was Ken Griffey Sr. Mm. Small little western Pennsylvania coal mining town in that respect. But again, he was the epitome of class. Now, his doppelganger in the American League is someone we'll talk about in a few minutes. That was Al Kaline. Al Kaline was the American League version of Stan the Man. Hey, hey, hey. I, I get to talk about Al Kaline. I know. I, know, I but, get to talk about him because he was usual, my favorite growing up. Yeah, so. usual was, I, again, the people in the West and in the South because that was, you know, you didn't have. TV, the World Series was not on TV regularly until 1947. And then you had Kurt so, Gowdy. Yeah, Kurt Gowdy. And, and again, that's the only people who got it. Regular TV during the summer, I mean, regular baseball during the summer was to play the radio. And it was more or less the Cardinals game. So that's who they heard. All right. Regional players. Let's get, well, since we've talked got, about, let's talk well, about got, our. Our next favorite three, like we've okay. gone through the top three, we've gone through others quickly, and we can come back to some others. I'll let you start. If you had to pick three other outfielders just for your own personal pleasure, who would they be? You mean for, for other than the ones we've picked? Right. Quir quirky, well, you, quirky picks. Quirky picks that are not going to make the top ten but are outside that top ten. Okay. Oh, that's on the top 10. All right. I'm going to let you go first. Let me okay. think. I have to All right. little, well, let me start with who you've already mentioned, Al Kaline. I grew up in uh, Midland, Michigan, which is about two hours north of Detroit, and we would listen to the Superstation WJR 760 on your radio dial, and we listened to Ernie Harwell and Paul Carey. Um, every night I'd turn in my transistor radio, and back in those days, if you don't know what this is, it ran off a little 8 Folk battery that you put in the back, and I would listen in my room to the broadcast. Al Keline came up straight from high school. He was one of those bonus babies and stayed and won the batting championship in '54, uh, hitting 340. He was a really good player early on, and he would have averaged 300 for his whole career, but his last two years 
of playing baseball. He hit 255 and 262. But he hit 297 for his career, 399 home runs. That's a killer, too. Um, he had 1,500 or almost 1,600 RBIs. His war was only 92.8, but the point for us was he was a class act. He played in right field, and he could throw out people so well from right field, and he was a leader. He was a class guy all the way through. He was known as Mr. Tiger. He worked for the Detroit Tiger Baseball Club his whole career. After he retired from baseball, he worked for the front office and hung around the team. Even up to this last year, he just died about three weeks ago or two weeks ago. So alkaline was my favorite. And plus, it's a battery, alkaline, right? And uh, my second just off-the-board pick for outfielders is Kirk Gibson. And now you're seeing some of my Detroit Tiger influence. Kirk Gibson had really poor statistics if you're looking at him versus others. He played for the Tigers and he played for the Dodgers. He hit 268 over his career, only 255 home runs. His war was a measly 38, meaning that most people had better statistics than him. But he was my grandmother's favorite player. He played football at Michigan State. And in 1984, he led the team to win the World Series, hitting home runs. And then who can not forget, uh, who can forget, excuse me, the classic home run off Dennis Eckersley in the World Series when the Dodgers, he limped around the the field after he hit a home run. And um, Vin Scully's call is classic. So that's my second one. And my third one is Carl Skrimsky. Try to say that three times fast or even spell it. He was my grandfather's favorite player. He played for the Boston Red Sox. He played for the Red Sox his whole career. He was son of a potato farmer. He wasn't the most friendly guy, but he had the really interesting stance. And my cousins, who we would visit out in Massachusetts every other year, would always talk about Yaz. And I remember they'd give me a book about Yaz's life. And so we'd always debate who's better, Al Kaline or Skrimsky. And I think that's part of baseball, too. It's just sitting around saying, oh, I think he's better, or your player stinks, or, hey, you want to trade baseball cards? All right, there's a quick r- lineup for me. How about you, Ernest? Okay, I'm a, we're going to eliminate anybody we've mentioned already. Okay. And I'm going to talk about guys that, that when they came to bat, I would stop what I was doing and I would watch it. Nice. And, and two of these guys actually played for a team that hasn't been to the World Series ever. <laughs> so uh, I'll start off with Ken Griffey Jr., Oh, I know. He just had the sweetest swing. And he was just so magical in those, a lot of those catches in the outfield, the old kingdom, how he would swoop in and crawl up the wall and catch the ball in that respect. A remarkable player. I mean, Ken Griffey Jr. The other one from the Mariners is pretty easy to guess, too. You only know him by his, first, his last name, first name, excuse me, Ichiro. I mean, just a hitting machine. And, and again, he was just, I've got a chance to watch him play live. I got to see both of them play live. And I got to see uh, King Griffey play for both the, the Reds and the, uh, the Mariners. But Ichiro, in the, watching him in the outfield, the, between pitches, he would do calisthenics. <laughs> it was the wildest thing, deep knee bends. He would stretch. And it's just the way he just automatically hit. Now, my third choice is a little hard because I was going to go with Pete Rose. But, again, everybody knows about his, uh, shall we say, foibles. Uh, And then I was thinking about Reggie Jackson. Mm. 
you know, it's so good they named a candy bar after him. As Craig Metal said, it's the only candy bar that tells you how good it tastes when you open up the wrapper. Uh, but I'm going to go with someone that it didn't have a long career, but the things he could do physically Bo, were just Bo, amazing. Bo. Bo, I mean, I, I, and I got a chance to see him, and he made one of the greatest throws I've ever seen. The fact that he could snap the bat with just his hands, I mean, he was just an amazing athlete. And it's a shame he, Denard Walker of the, the uh, Bengals in a playoff game when he was with the LA Raiders tackled him and led to a hip injury where the lining of the hip bone actually died. And he never was the same player. He did return to play DH in the outfield for the Angels and the White Sox, but he, he wasn't the same dynamic player that he was before. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw him run across the wall, the outfield once. He was just amazing. It's, it's, there was a guy in my, my – uh, uh, and by the way, Stan Mutual is my dad's favorite player also, but there's a guy that my dad used to talk about named Pete Reeser, who played for the Dodgers in the 50s, who was similar to Bo Jackson. And the fact that back then they didn't have uh, batting helmets. He would, they would just give you plastic inserts to go inside your cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Branch Rickey actually came up with the batting helmets in the mid-50s when he was with the Pirates. But most players would not wear batting helmets until they were made mandatory in the 60s because they thought it was a bit of shame if you wore one, that you weren't man enough. But Reeser got hit so much in the head, the fact that he bleed from his ears and his head. But uh, for the first couple of years, he was the Bo Jackson of the 50s. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of guys like that, that, that for over a period of time, just, you know, injuries just cost them what a great career they could have had. Uh, you kind of wonder. Mantle's the story you hear about more than anything else. But there are a lot of other guys, just injuries, and it cut his career short, and we were all robbed to a certain extent. Right. Reggie Jackson was on a list that I looked at, and I just decided he was great in the clutch times, Mr. October for the Yankees. Um, but he wasn't my favorite guy to watch, and he still is really arrogant, and that sort of sits wrong with me. Pete Rose, for all his accomplishments of all the hits he did, the war statistic that a lot of people are using, he only had 79.7, which meant he wasn't always, or very rarely, he was the best player on the field or one of the best players in the league. He he was consistent. He was like a Ty Cobb. He could hit, but it wasn't always for power. Um, he just was super competitive, which is a good thing. I mean, th- we're talking the best of the best here. So, Ernest, you grew up a huge Baltimore Oriole fan. I lived in Baltimore during the 90s, and I became a fan as well. So I'm going to let you talk about, you know, the three outfielders you think are the best that played for Baltimore. Well, I've mentioned one already. That's Frank Robinson. Yeah, definitely. And and then, I, you know, okay, I got Frank in right field, okay? So it's hard for me to pick between Paul Blair and Adam Jones. But statistically speaking, and Paul Blair was, he basically played very shallow center field. Because he could go back on any ball, but he didn't wasn't the hitter that Adam Jones was. And Adam mm-hmm. Jones was a pretty decent center fielder for the Orioles for nine years. So my center fielder is 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 going to be him. It's going to be Adam Jones. Left field, this guy is really underrated. He only played a couple of years for the Orioles, mm-hmm. but I'm going to go with Ken Singleton. Really? Okay. Yeah, Ken Singleton was a classic. Now, now there's stars that came in the last part of the, the career. 
and played for the Orioles. Freddie Lynn, yes. but he was kind of washed up. Vladimir Guerrero, I think the last team he played for was the Orioles. And it's probably the best single season was was Brady Anderson, but we all know <laughs> he was on Roy. He was. He, was. he hit over 50 home runs. Out so, of nowhere. Yeah, so Ken Singleton was uh, a pretty decent. Now, a lot of people would say, well, how about Nick Marcakis? How about Al Bumbry? Al Bumbry had such a short career. I mean, he was rookie of the year, came in with Rich Coggins, and they were kind of the the Orioles had to change from a home run hitting team to a team that basically hit singles and advanced the runner. But he had – you put Bumbry against Adam Jones? Well, describe I mean, Bumbry to people because I remember him. What was his height? Probably five six or yes. five seven. He wasn't quite and Kevin Hart playing baseball, but he was no, a little bit taller than that. He, he was quick. He, he could was a leadoff. He could hit singles, leadoff hitter, and they had Rich Coggins playing second. Rich Coggins later was traded to the Padres and died of of uh, HIV. But uh, I mean, they were this this roadrunner leading off the team. It was a transitioning period because they had traded Frank Robinson. Brooks was kind of winning down his career. Um, and, and again, there was an old team that was just trying to stick along for a couple of years, but he only had two or three good years. I, again, I'll go with Jones and Singleton. Singleton was, most people now know Ken Singleton as being the baseball voice for the Yankees, mm-hmm. but he was, a you know, hit 280 about that area. He was a good arm, great left fielder, was an all-star. I mean, it's similar to what you're going to do with the Tigers. You can come up with two pretty easily. Well, the, the, you know my story with Ken Singleton. He signed a, a hat for my son at the Fan Fest for the All-Star Game in Baltimore and was very classy about it. Um, I'm surprised in a way that Baltimore hasn't had more great outfielders, that you sort of got two and three, maybe three, and then it was hard to get that third and fourth one. Mark Hakus would be your fourth one, and I think a lot of people know him more as – being with the Braves nowadays, but pretty much, you know, when Angelos has pretty much ruined the team, which has been <laughs> the last 20 years, he was, he, he's been solid. I mean, Trumbo had one good year. They've had a lot of one year wonders in that respect. Yeah. But, but no, I mean, the, more infielders and pitchers. I, I mean, agree. pitchers, pitchers, Orioles are loaded with pitchers, except for right now. And, you know, they've had some good infielders, Tejada and, Brooks and and uh, Sandy Alomar Jr. and if you really wanted to stretch it, but he really wasn't there. But a couple years, you would go Don Baylor. Yes, Don but Blair the, was a good player. I remember him quite well. Big he tall guy, strong yeah. guy. Well, the, the thing is, when they brought him up, he was considered the second candidate. It was a guy in the name of Roger Freed. Roger Freed is the reason why they traded away Frank Robinson because they got Freed to come in. Freed was averaging in Rochester about 330 and, and 25 home runs, but he just flopped in the major leagues. And so they brought in Don Baylor. It's kind of an afterthought. And Don Baylor pretty much followed the example of what he was pretty much the, the guiding soul for Eddie Murray when Murray came in the latter part of the 70s. Yeah. But Baylor just he played for so many teams, uh, but he he brought that again those intangibles similar to Frank Robinson in that right. respect. Well, let, let me talk about my Detroit all-time outfield. You already thought I I have named them all, but really I haven't. 
Um, Alkaline Lion playing in right field, definitely. We've talked to him already. And I'm not picking Kurt Gibson because he didn't play for Detroit long enough and the statistics weren't there. Um, Hank Greenberg was an awesome player for the Tigers. There's a statue of him out in Comerica. Ernest and I tried to attend the game one day and they had to go back another day and walked around the statues out in center field where these are huge statues of players in action, meaning they're swinging the bat or they're throwing a ball, and they're, I'd say, almost twice life-size. And Hank Greenberg hit 313 over his career back in the 40s, 331 home runs. Um, He was a pretty great player and significant player. And then the last one has to be Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb hit 366. But it was a time of year or time of the baseball history when slapping the ball around was really important. He only hit 117 home runs, hit 1,900 RBIs. He he hit over 400 three times. And his war statistic is 151, which meant he was always the best player on the field or close to it, except for when Babe Ruth came around and hit all those home runs. And yes, all the stories about Type Cobb are true how he would sharpen his um, cleats, how he would clean up a second baseman trying to cover the bag, how he called people the wrong type of names. But it was pointed out to me that after he retired and he went back down to Georgia, he softened up, and every picture you see of him after he's retired, he has his arm around one of the other guys. And I think we've talked about this before. He missed the camaraderie. He missed the team spirit. He missed baseball a lot. I don't think he ever was a guy who wasn't fighting his own demons. But as a outfielder for Detroit Tigers, you have to put him on one of the top three. Remember the line in uh, Field of Dreams? Which one? The one about, you know, they called all the great ball players to play on the Field of Dreams, and Cobb wanted to play, but they told him to go stick it. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't Both those guys, and, and Greenberg, People don't realize now he was a victim of discrimination. He was Jewish. He was Jewish. And there's a great documentary that it's, it's available. You can get a chance to look at it because he had a chance to break Babe Ruth's record. And they literally the last month of the season, he had 50 home runs and they would not pitch to him. And he was a source of comfort for Jackie Robinson when Jackie Robinson came in to the extent that both of them had faced the discrimination, which came again. And uh, played for the Pirates and and the um, Tigers also was the atypical home run. It was considered a gentleman to this day. But if you get a chance to walk the, watch the documentary, it's very, very entertaining. There's also a, a not exactly accurate movie called Cobb. Tommy Jones plays uh, Ty Cobb in the 60s when he's dictating his autobiography. Mm-hmm. Uh to um, an individual and it kind of takes some things that didn't happen but Cobb again uh, there are a lot of bad stories and again you have to divorce what he did on the career with his personal life he did take very early when he retired he was very very frugal saved his money and he bought stock in a small company in Atlanta do you know what that company was Coca-Cola became the largest shareholder of Coca-Cola when he died in 1962 mm. made him a millionaire yeah. and it did invest that he uh, a lot of uh, a lot of hospitals in Georgia were built by money that he gave so uh, again the horrible individual but now, now who you're close to seconds I gave you my almost in my list which Tigers mixed 
missed the cut in that respect. Oh, there's other p- players I just enjoyed watching for different reasons. And this is really a, a deep cut for baseball history now. And you have to understand, for me, baseball is a lot about growing up in a family where my dad would, grew up in Detroit and would be very interested, and I wanted to be interested because he was. Um, and my brothers would talk about it. So in 1968, the Tigers won the World Series. And on that team, there were certain players that became legendary. I mean, they became bigger than life to a small kid. One was Mickey Stanley, who could play shortstop or outfield. And he came in to play shortstop because um, the Dick Wirtz couldn't... Well, Dick Wirtz played um, third base, but another guy, I think, another guy couldn't... Ray Euler, that was the guy. Right, could, Ray Euler, correct. Couldn't hit out of a paper bag, so they brought in Stanley. And he played so well that we named one of our cats after him. That was how well he played. <laughs> Um, and then Jim Northrup was a left fielder. He never had a great career, but he had a good couple years. And he was from a nearby town, Alma, Michigan, where my parents went to college. So that was a local boy that did well. And then Willie Horton was one of the first African-American star players in Detroit, played left field. And when we had the race riots here in Detroit, and he was one of the key people to help calm things down. Uh, there was another guy named Gates Brown who came off the bench. And Gates Brown was, earlier in his life, got in trouble, was in prison, got out of prison. And he, he was a great pinch hitter. And then I could go on to Ron LaFleur. I mean, I think anybody who has grown up with a favorite team have stories about their favorite players. And not everybody knows about them, but you know about them. And that's what you enjoy sitting around outside a pool or saying, hey, do you remember the time when Mickey Stanley came in to play short or... Jim Northup or Norm Cash, or you can go around the whole lineup. And my brother and I were collecting baseball cards, tops, of course. And we had, for 1968, a complete set of Tiger players. We didn't buy them as a set. We had to collect them the hard way, buying individual packets. We had two full sets of the 1968 starting lineup. And then we had thousands of baseball cards. And I've probably told the story before. I came home from college when my junior year, and I was curious about how were the, where were my baseball cards, and I asked my mom, and drum roll, da, 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 da. oh, I threw them away. I didn't think you wanted them anymore. No. But the good side of that is that summer I started collecting baseball cards down at the 7-Eleven. I just pick them up. And that year I got Cal Ripken rookie, Wade Boggs rookie, and I was able to sell my collection from that summer for enough to buy a crib for my son when we were still in graduate school. So there you go. Quick let's, story. Let's go, let's go back to the 68 um, Tigers. The manager was? Mayo Smith. And the guy who won the MVP because he won three games because the Tigers had to come back from a 3-1 deficit. Mickey Lolich, a left-hander pitcher, owned a donut shop. And rode a motorcycle also. Yeah, he did. Was a little on the portly side. Yes. All right. so we always said he North- looked like my Uncle Tom. <laughs> and Northrop actually hit the game-winning double in game seven is Lolich went against who the invincible that Bob time, Gibson, Bob Gibson, that respect. I mean, it was, it was two world series in a row that went seven games. So which and world was, series is in, ingrained in your mind? Cause we got about oh, four more seven, minutes before this podcast. 71, 71. And like you, there are guys on that team, Chico Simone, uh, Andy Etcheberry was the backup catcher for the Orioles, right. the ugliest man on earth. <laughs> really, wow. that was that was it. Players with nice uh, in ball four, 
Jim Bouton talked about that guys would, you know, they call him ugly. He looked better with a mask yeah. on. Well, no, they, they'd say, yeah, I'm ugly, but at least I don't like Andy <laughs> Etcheverry. Wow. And, the, and, and, and cool. the other catcher was Clay Dyrimple, who we would, where I lived, we would get Senators, Mets, Phillies, and Orioles games. Chuck Thompson do the Orioles games. Time for a good old national. But uh, Clay <laughs> Dyrimple, yes, Clay Dyrimple would always come up to bat with the bases loaded and two outs and strike out. It was just a going joke between me and my dad. Oh, Lord, Clay Dyrimple is coming to bat <laughs> But you had Mark Belanger, who was like seven foot tall. Now he's really about six foot six. Shortstop. Which was unusual for a shortstop to be that size. Now, Boog Powell, who I love, is this big, bam bam looking, that's a Flintstones thing, left handed, just a nice guy who I've had the opportunity to meet because he has a barbecue place in, right in Camden field. Yard yep. in right field. Very, very nice guy. I mean, very, very approachable. I, again, a guy who wears who he was in that town very much. He had Brooks Robinson and, of course, Frank, Paul Blair, and he had uh, Don Buford was uh, the left fielder. Don Buford actually was tailback for USC, played in the Rose Bowl uh, national championship team. But you had uh, Earl Weaver was the manager. So Earl your dad was, was a huge I, Oriole fan then? No, Cardinals fan. Oh, my <laughs> dad loved the Cardinals. Yeah, he was on the other side of those, that 68 World Series. So was you and your brother cheering on the Orioles then? Believe it or not, my brother was a Tigers fan. See, I and know in, what. Now I know why I like him. Uh, and we went to, there was a store called W.T. Grants, which went out of business. Yes, I remember that. 1968, for his uh, sixth birthday, we found this little six-inch figure of uh, McLean. Okay. Denny McLean, pitcher Denny for McLean. the Tigers. Not Don McLean, not the guy that sung American Pie, but Denny McLean, who had a – he was built like Fred Flintstone, but he had this very, very uh, individualistic windup where his he would put his foot higher than his head. Mm-hmm. High kick, like Juan Marichal kind of kick. And we got this little figure and put it on my brother's cake, and he saved that figure, I think, until we left Delaware. But even to this day, he, he – he was upset when Al Kyline passed away, but he was a, a Tigers fan. And that came to the fact that in 66, uh, we went to the JCPenney's and a mom promised we could all get a major league baseball hat. Mm. And there were four teams to pick from. There were the Tigers, the Orioles, uh, the Senators and the Yankees. And we didn't want the Yankees were terrible then. That was the horse Clark years okay this is the yankees were terrible this is when cbs owned the yankees and they really were bad and i bought an orioles hat the the old smiling bird which is still the best and my brother got the tigers hat and that's how he was hooked and that's about the time the tigers were being good because they were part of a uh, four teams that were in uh, within one game of first place in 67 right and one of the best finishes in the american league ever right and when they won in 68 he loved denny mcclain and he loved Norm Cash, who was one of the few players at that time who would not wear uh, batting gloves. Right. He was a left-handed batter. And he got in trouble because he had this one year where he won the batting title, 1960, about 360. But they found out later he was, like, hauling out his baseball bat. He was <laughs> Super Bowl. Yeah. He put Super Balls in there because you get the heft of the bat. Uh, super balls are like bouncy play. balls for the younger crowd. Yes, yes, yes. Very, very concentrated balls. And he would put uh, plastic wood on the end. And he broke a bat and the balls went flying. That's how <laughs> they found out about it to that extent. 
All right. We got to wrap it up, Ernest, for this podcast. Uh, wrap it up with if you could have dinner with any player alive or gone already, if you could just say, hey, I want to have a Field of Dreams moment with one player, who would that be? Wow. I, I, even though politically we are as extreme as uh, I was going to say Ted Williams, we'll go with Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron, and a lot of people don't realize Hank Aaron had the year that he hit 715. He had to have police protection at all times. He got threatening letters. He had bombs sent to him. He had, again, not police protection, FBI protection. There was one time before he hit 714 when someone threatened his daughter and she was going to, uh, she was going to, I think, Chattanooga, UTC Chattanooga, and he drove up four hours in the middle of the night to get up there and she was of course okay it was just a crank but you're talking about a a southern city in which they still had segregated bathrooms in which he was breaking to a lot of old whites a number that no one would ever break so the personal hearing what he's gone through the personal challenges he gave in breaking that record and he just seems to be a very nice guy. I mean, he always has come across interviews, even today, at a very advanced age, very knowledgeable about how the game is going. And you never hear him trash the modern ball players. You never hear him say, back in our day, we were better. He, he is respectful of the game. So I'll say Hank Aaron. All right. And I'm going to go with the very first person we talked about, and that's Babe Ruth. It was just such a different time. And I imagine he would have great stories, and he would take me to the best steak place you could ever find in New York City. Well, Ernest, we've talked a good hour here talking about baseball, so I appreciate everything you've contributed today. And we'll do more of these master classes. And, folks, we appreciate you listening to Pardon the Confusion. If you have any ideas for master classes, just send it to me, Paul Arnold, at gobluearnold at gmail.com. That's go, G O. B-L-U-E-A-R-N-O-L-D at gmail.com. So for Ernest Watts, this is Paul Arnold. Let's play ball.